We're going to begin a series this morning, a short series on worship, something that I've been wanting to uh, study and walk through for some time, for, a, for two or three months I've been wanting to do and just now getting to it. And so looking at two, maybe three weeks is the plan. We'll see what happens. But I want to look at worship. And then, Lord willing, we finally intend to begin the book of Colossians, which I have uh, been eagerly awaiting and wanting to do for some time now. So I want to encourage you as well in terms of our time together in Sunday school to, uh, to be thinking about worship, but also anticipating where we intend to go during this hour as a church to be reading through the book of Colossians together. You can read through the entire book out loud in between 10 and 15 minutes. Um, the average reader, about 12, 13 minutes, something like that. So I would encourage you to be doing that so that you can read it as a whole the way the Lord intended it. As we get started and begin to think about worship this morning, I want to recommend a few really short, brief books to you. These are mine, but we are working on getting a few copies of these for those of you who would be interested in them. Uh, one of them is called Sing by Keith and Kristen Getty. A lot of the music that we do, uh, they've written or they have uh, helped to write, and they put a conference on every year. And uh, Tyler and Lauren gave me a copy of this book, and I think several of you, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it's called Sing How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family, and Church. Really easy, very clear read that is encouraging, convicting. So I would really encourage you to get a copy of this. We'll begin to talk about this aspect of worship more next week. This week, we just intend to lay the foundation. So sing by the Gettys. Write that down. Another I felt found extremely helpful is called Gather God's People. Understand, plan, and lead worship in your local church. This is in a uh, series by Practical Shepherding by Brian Croft. Very short, easy read. This will give you a little more insight into the planning of corporate worship um, and what goes into planning our time together in worship and how we think through that. But I think this would be very helpful for you. One other that I want to recommend is a book by Terry Johnson called Reformed Worship, Worship That is According to Scripture, another very short, very Scripture-saturated, uh, biblical look at worship. And so I found this very helpful in thinking about this. It takes you immediately to Scripture, but then also the rich foundation of church history and how Reformed Baptists, uh, Presbyterians, and those in that general vicinity have viewed worship. So these are very helpful. Uh, so I commend all of those to you. I'll mention again next week. We'll try to get a couple extra copies of them. But what we're going to do is we're going to begin a series and we're going to go straight to the book, straight to the Word. And so uh, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to begin to turn there, and we'll see how far we get. But the title of this series is Worship by the Word. Worship by the Word, part one. And notice I don't say part one of, because I don't know how many ofs there's going to be. The plan is two, but we'll just take it week by week. So we're going to just look at worship in Scripture. When I think of worship, I'm immediately reminded of a trip to Israel several, several years ago that I took with Christy and with my mom together during my MDiv studies in seminary. And when we were in Israel, at one particular place, we came to an old synagogue 
And as I begin to ascend the steep stone steps up to this place of worship, this first century synagogue, I nearly tripped over myself several times. And so as I began to shift my eyes from looking up and looking ahead, I instantly caught myself and I began to look down. I had to look down because I was beginning to fall down. And what I realized was that all of the steps were unevenly laid with varying distances apart from one another. So I asked the God, I said, what happened in the planning process for this? Was the crew sober when they laid the stairway? To which the God replied, they were more sober than you can ever realize. They said that they purposely laid the steps unevenly to force the worshiper to slow down, refusing to allow him to casually enter into God's presence and to carefully consider what's going on in worship and to carefully consider the dignity of the person, the one, the being, being worshiped and exclude all flippancy. So for you to just casually mosey in to worship, you would fall all over yourself before you got there. I remember in a worship leadership class and one one class I had in seminary, the professor asked the class what they think worship is. And a lot of answers were given by a lot of different pastors about what worship is and how to define it until at one point, I'll never forget, sitting in this class, after several thoughts were offered, it got quiet and then one pastor with a trembling lip spoke up and he said this. He said, I believe that worship means that we have no clue who we're dealing with. I think the statement is true that we're all great worshipers. We just choose lousy gods. We're natural worshipers because we naturally give our attention, our affection, and our allegiance to someone or to something. But what we see throughout the scriptures is this concept, this truth of idolatry, which is worship gone wrong, which is misplaced worship. But I want to ask you this lead-in question for us to consider as we begin to think through what Scripture shows us about worship. And it's this, is there a more important concern for us than worship? I'm going to argue that the worship of God must be governed by the Word of God. By the Word of God. John, John Piper soberly writes what I think is in generally speaking, accurate description. And I want you to listen to this description. He said, the older I get, the less impressed I am with flashy successes and enthusiasms that are not truth-based. Everybody knows that with the right personality, the right music, the right location, and the right schedule, you can grow a church without anybody really knowing what doctrinal commitments sustain it, if any. Church planting specialists generally downplay biblical doctrine and the core values of what makes a church, quote, successful. The long-term effect of this ethos is a weakening of the church that is concealed as long as the crowds are large, the band is loud, the tragedies are few, and the persecution is still at the level of preferences. But more and more, this doctrinally diluted brew of music, drama, life tips, and marketing seems out of touch with real life 
in this world. Not to mention the next. It tastes like watered down gruel, not a nourishing meal. It simply isn't serious enough. It's too playful and chatty and casual. Its joy doesn't feel deep enough or heartbroken or well-rooted. The injustice and persecution and suffering and hellish realities in the world today are so many and so large and so close that I can't help but think that deep inside, people are longing for something weighty and massive and rooted and stable and eternal. So it seems to me that the trifling with silly little sketches and breezy welcome to the den styles on Sunday morning are just out of touch with matters in life. Of course it works, sort of, because in the name of felt needs, it resonates with people's impulse to run from what is most serious and weighty and what makes them most human and what might open the depths of God to their souls. The price of minimizing truth-based joy and maximizing atmosphere-based comfort is high. And he closes by saying, I doubt that a religious ethos with such a feel of entertainment can really survive as Christians for too many more decades. Crisis reveals the cracks. And this has, for the most part, been my experience. I was in a conversation just last night about a young man that I'd been a part of discipling for many years and had run from the faith for some time and ended up in uh, a more of a modern type of worship, generally speaking, this more entertainment driven. And finally, he just said, you know, I don't think that there's just substance weightiness here that can answer the questions of life and that reveals the character and glory of God. So they said he's in an Anglican church now, which is the opposite extreme. But I think that we see a generation arising It says that there's got to be more. There's got to be substance. We often in the modern Western church, though we may not ever actually say it, the attitude often seems to be, God should be happy whatever we choose to bring before him in worship, however we want to worship him. He's glad that we choose to worship him at all. So how we choose to worship him as a worship gathering, as a church, doesn't depend on God or his word. It depends on the preferences and the style of the person offering the worship. Friends, tampering with worship is not only mistaken, it's dangerous. And it even proves fatal at times because it tends toward idolatry if we're not careful. If we're not careful, we often view God as nothing more than a better version of ourselves. And so idolatry comes into play when we come to God on our own terms and we worship a God after our own likeness. But biblical worship is coming to the true God in the way that he's revealed in his word and worshiping him the way that he's prescribed. Oftentimes, modern corporate worship amounts to what I would call an unanchored drift Subject to the shifting winds of the preferences of the day, Ephesians 4.14. So I would argue that what's popular in this world could distract us. What's traditional might serve as a helpful guide to direct us, but scripture is sufficient to order our worship. The question that I have for us is, is there anything that's anchored by the truth? Is there anything that's filled with spiritual life? 
And is there anything that's reliable to the core? We're going to look and see what scripture says as a whole regarding worship. And one thing is for certain worship matters and God cares how he is worshiped. Several years ago, Terry Johnson in the book that I recommended to you said the influences of the baby boomer generation, the influences of mass culture and the charismatic movement have converged to bring rapid, controversial and popular change. The forms of traditional worship, such as the historical orders of service, organs, hymns, metrical psalms, creeds, pastoral prayers, and biblical sermons, have been jettisoned in favor of the forms of contemporary culture. Soft rock, talk show format, a friendly informal atmosphere, an overhead projector, which this statement is dated in and of itself, and topical sermons addressing felt needs. One thing is sure, we have seen a massive shift in our generation in our approach to worship and especially corporate worship. And many of those effects are not virtuous. So if we believe that scripture, not human intuition, not experience in the sense of what do I want, what do I need, If we believe that scripture, not popular culture, in other words, not what do I hear most often playing on the radio and how do more popular churches do it? But if we really believe that God's worship, God's word is sufficient to order our worship in a way that is pleasing to God. The question is, what does the word teach us about worship? The word teaches us that we were created for worship. We're natural born experts in worship, but we have a tendency sinfully to worship what is created rather than the creator. And I want to show you beginning in Genesis three with Adam and Eve as you're there in your Bibles. Now we're going to look at a selection of passages, but I completely understand that for every passage that we pick, there's about 20 to 30 that we didn't pick that we could have picked. And if we could stay together for about six or seven more hours, I promise we'll get to the passage that maybe you have in mind that we don't get to. But I'm guessing that that probably would not be appropriate this morning. In Genesis 3, we see the beginning of the worship war. When Adam and Eve took worship into their own hands. Rather than worshiping and walking with God on his terms, they transgressed God's law and they asserted their own autonomy. And then from here, we see the worship wars begin to unfold. Turn with me to Genesis chapter four. Starting in verse three, we move to Cain and Abel. And we begin to see a very clear picture about God's prescription for worship. Now you have to understand as we go through these passages, there will be much that's left to be unsaid because I want to cover a survey of a lot of passages. But we want to get the main point. Starting in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, 
will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The million dollar question here is why did God reject Cain's offering? And the text does not directly, specifically unpack all of this. But due to the contrast of the two offerings, there's two major explanations, among others, but two main explanations that are given. And we don't have time to unpack all the details of this. But the two main explanations is either, number one, this was an unauthorized offering. He's bringing something to God that he shouldn't. Number two, the other explanation is that this was an authorized offering. He's worshiping God in a way that God has prescribed, but he's doing so with a corrupt motive. In other words, you might say that this is a violation of worship either in spirit or in truth. Regardless, God establishes very early that he cares deeply about how he is approached in worship. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We see God and his people. The Exodus is central in redemption. Repeatedly in Exodus, God is clear that he's going to deliver his people so that his people can then delight in him and worship. In other words, we're saved to worship. Then in Exodus 20, we come to the Ten Commandments and we see that God is concerned not only with the whom of corporate worship, but the how of corporate worship. Exodus 20, starting in verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we could go on. But we see that God's law is a reflection and a revelation of his own nature and of his expectations for holiness in worship and approaching him. So we can know God and his blessing on his own terms or we can know him in his wrath, his settled opposition towards sin. So quite clearly, if we don't learn anything else here, the simple point is that we're to reject idols in God's place and we are to reject images that represent God. Because so often, men say that they love God, but what they find is that they love a God who's a lot like themselves, a God of their own making. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but I want you to note verses 15 through 18. The Bible is very clear over and over that we're not to worship God according to our own innovations. In other words, we're not just making this stuff up. We're not to worship God according to our imaginations, our opinions, not primarily based on our experiences, our representations. 
If you're hearing me and understanding me, you realize that this goes completely against the grain of anything post-Renaissance in modern-day American culture. But we are to worship God according to His Word. And the Bible is to be central in forming our view of God and informing our worship of God. It's been said that how we worship determines who we worship. Have you heard this saying that the medium affects the message? The medium affects the message and the message affects the medium. The container always affects the contents and the contents affects the container. And I'm going to talk more next week about what I mean by that. But what I'm the point I think scripture is making is that God is very concerned about how we come before him and what we do when we worship. Not only the message, not only the container, but the the method, the medium. I love how one scholar put it. He said, in light of Exodus 20, he said, there's two ways to commit idolatry. Number one, worshiping something other than the true God. Clear violation of idolatry. But number two, worshiping the true God in the wrong way. And if we learn anything from Exodus 20, we see that it's possible to worship the true God in the wrong way. Friends, my just personal experience with worship in thinking through this, I believe that the way we worship God reflects what we think of God. The way we worship God reflects what we think of God. And if there's anything that we learn from Scripture, just as any husband, God is jealous for His bride, for His glory. You don't have to turn there, but I want to just make reference to Exodus chapter 25 through 31, Exodus chapter 35 through 40, Leviticus 25, several passages early in the law, we see the sanctuary and the furnishings in Old Testament worship. And oftentimes we're tempted just to breeze through this section of scripture and get bogged down in all of these details. But what we see here is that God reveals intricate instructions for the design of the tabernacle and the design of the temple which would serve as a representation for his glory. How many of you know what passages I'm talking about in the Bible? If you'll be honest, can we take a vote? Or a Baptist church would vote, right? How many of you, when you come to those passages, you just kind of skip it, move on to the next thing? Anyone honest enough? Well, there'll be a middle way. How many of you kind of feel guilty skipping it, so you just kind of skim it? Just get the, raise your hand. All right. Be proud. Raise your hand. How many of you come to those passages and you read through those passages? You read through the verses. We're split all three ways. What those passages teach us is that it's God's plan. It's not the people's creativity and it's not even the artisans who would build it. It is God's plan that is determinative in making of the place where his people would meet him. He would be their God and they would be his people on his terms. And worship would consist of a delightful, a delightful, a reverent and a spiritual communion with God 
and his people flowing from God's grace, enabled by God's spirit, and it was to be carefully ordered according to God's divine instructions. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. By the way, if I didn't mention, you're going to need a Bible today. You always need a Bible, but we're still just getting started. So if you don't have one, we would encourage you to bring one next week or we'd be We'd love to provide you one or just look on with your neighbor. But when we get to Exodus 32, we see Aaron and Israel. As we remember the golden calf, if there's any lesson that we learn here is that we cannot take the worship of God into our own hands. This is the breaking of God's law and covenant. This is the rejection of God. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. We read, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. We see a lot here about worship. Following the storyline, we see that Aaron's impatience with the true God leads to this organizational creation of a new God. And I think that we see that today. Our impatience with the true God will lead to the creation of a new God. And look in this new order of worship in Exodus 32. We see new priests. We see a new mediator. We see a new altar. We see a new statue. We see a new festival. We see visible representations of deity. Scholars argue this could be evidence of pluralism, worshiping another God in addition to Yahweh, or it could be syncretism, just worshiping God in a pagan way, unprescribed by God. Either way, what we see here is that idolatry leads to immorality. Idolatry leads to immorality. No longer is the entrance into God's presence guarded on God's terms, but man takes the initiative to determine how he'll come to God on his terms with unprescribed, untrue, visible representations of worship, with new worship that's demanded, not freely offered. In Exodus 32, 7 through 10, God calls his people obstinate, turning away from his command in worship, and his anger burns against them. Let's continue. Leviticus chapter 10. We see another encounter of, with God in worship. We continue to move through this because I don't think the scripture so much specifically and strictly defines worship as we just see so many encounters of what happens in worship. Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 7, we, came, we come to Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus 10 verse 1, we read that these are the sons of Aaron. 
Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. You mean you can't just worship God however you want to? Which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Here's a central defining statement in worship. And Aaron held his peace. Quite simply, they treated God as unholy. They offered up strange fire that was not in accordance to the way that God had commanded to be worshiped. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 12, God commands careful observance of his ways and we're to worship without addition or subtraction. Let's continue walking through worship encounters. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we come to another very important encounter with Saul and Samuel. Again, I think we see the principle played out that our impatience with the true God can lead to our creation of a new God before we even realize it. Whereby we worship God on our own terms. And then the question is, are we really worshiping God? First Samuel, starting in verse 22, uh, chapter 15. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And then here's that key statement. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So God rejects Saul's unprescribed worship because it's out of accordance with what God commands. Let's continue. Second Samuel chapter six, David and Uzzah. Second Samuel chapter six, starting in verse six. Another terrifying instance of what it means to come into the presence of God. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God what? Struck him down there because of his error. And he died there because the, beside the ark of God. You know, the sin within inside of us and sinners would read this and say, how dare God? He's just trying to save the ark. Like, how dare God strike this man dead? But holiness reads this and cries out, how dare a mere mortal sinful man presume upon God? This is in violation of the way that the ark and the worship of God was to be carried out. And so in this seeming last ditch effort to, quote, save God, they realize that God doesn't need saving. God is to be handled on his own terms. In Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah 32, God condemns places and offerings in worship that he's not commanded. I want you to continue. Look with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we come to a very awe-inspiring picture of worship. 
When we come to Uzziah and the incense. Again, this is when worship can become seriously dangerous. We're not going to read it, but I want you there and I want you to see it and mark this passage and go back. When King Uzziah became strong, the irony in verse 16 is that we we see that he became proud. And he refused the priest who stood in the way. He overstepped his ground and he went into the temple himself. He was not to do that. He was out of order. The king was not to take the place of the priest. And he began to burn incense to the Lord in the, in the place of the priests. He began to take worship into his own hands. I'll worship God according to my preferences. And what did God do? God struck him with leprosy. Well, we're going to talk about this in service today, but I want you to flip now to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to read Isaiah chapter 5. But in Isaiah chapter 1, we get more instructions about corporate worship. And we come to these blood-stained hands of hypocrisy. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see people bringing worship and offerings before God. But backhandedly, they're sinning against God. And as they're showing this pretension of worship and through the festivals and going through all the right forms... We see that they're treating their neighbors unjustly. They're sinning against God in heart and God is not pleased. God refuses their worship. And he graciously calls them to repentance or else death. I know that this cuts against the grain today. But oftentimes the mindset is, what do you mean God rejects their worship? When was the last time we stepped back and we thought, My intent is to bring worship to God, but is it actually pleasing to God? What type of worship is pleasing to God? How should we worship God? And certainly the answer is in repentance and faith through Jesus Christ. Well, before we move to the New Testament, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We can't talk about gathering together for worship without looking at Isaiah in the temple. We read this passage last week, but I don't think that we would read this passage too much if we read it every week. Isaiah chapter 6. In the opening line, we realize that this is quite uncertain days in the life of God's people. They've had a king. They've had a turnover in the kingship. There seems to be questions being asked. We don't want to speculate too much. But when we come to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, We read, in the year that King Uzziah died, a defining moment, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. You mean God sits on a throne? He's not just like one of us? High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. If you can read this without a trembling lip, you're not understanding what you're reading. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. 
And I said, woe is me. Do you see the natural response? Do you see the rhythm of revelation and response here? Beginning with the holiness of God, moving to the sinfulness of man. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So you see something of God's glory and beauty and admiration and praise. And immediately you're contrasted in this terrifying encounter by everything that you sense and see and hear of God. You see nothing of that in yourself. To the contrary, you see a sinful affront in yourselves toward the glory of God. Then one of the seraphim in verse six flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so you see the forgiveness, you see the assurance of our sin through what we would know of through Jesus Christ, our pardon, our propitiation, our forgiveness. You see the assurance of our forgiveness and acceptance that would come through Christ. And then you see the sending out. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And if we keep reading that passage, we realize that He sent to a people to respond to a message that they would always reject and never respond to. But what we see is a terrifying encounter of worship where Isaiah is confronted with God and his glory. His instinct response is to cry out and declare in God's holiness, which confronts him with his own sinfulness. And it leaves him on his knees crying out for God's holiness, for God's mercy with no hope of satisfying his own sinful heart. And God meets him right there with grace and with assurance and forgives his sin and assures his guilty conscience in God's grace. And then he's sent out on God's behalf. And so we see this pattern of Uh, Not every time, but just generally speaking of what we would call revelation and response. God reveals himself and man responds. God reveals himself through his word and man responds. And we see God's provision of forgiveness, grace, and assurance. Well, we cross over. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We come to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 15, as well as in other gospels. And we begin to see something of a shift in worship. We see a confrontation yet again with Jesus and with the Pharisees. And we come to maybe what is some familiar verses to some of us in chapter 15, verse 7. And again, we see more about worship. In verse 7. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips. They seem to have the right form of worship. At other places we've seen they don't even have the right form of worship. They're worshiping God in the wrong way. Now they seem to have the right form, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
I don't think here in this larger passage that Jesus is rejecting tradition because I can give you verses which show tradition as positive and I can show you verses that portray tradition as negative. Scripture condemns, uh, uh, commends rather, Scripture commends longstanding tradition. What he is rejecting is tradition that's contrary to the truth. And what they have done is perverted the worship and law of God by adding to it, by going beyond it in a way that cut the entire heart of it. So their worship, their religion has become man-made, man-centered, and man-glorifying. It's full of lip service, going through the right motions, but ignoring a true heart that delights in God for who He is and His Word. Friends, a lot of passages to make one central point Jesus cares about how we worship. Turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we see Jesus and the woman. And John chapter 4 is a very decisive point in forming our view of New Testament worship. John chapter 4, starting in verse 21. If there's maybe a second point that we would make through the exercise that we're going in this morning, it's that the Word should drive our worship. The Word of God should drive and govern our worship. In John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. If there were any place in the Bible that it were possible to be a fly on the wall, if you will, for me, I would love to be a fly on the wall here. Watch this. The woman said to him, it's almost like she's just throwing her hands up in the air. I can't figure it out. I mean, there are so many different interpretations, so many different thinking. The Samaritans do it this way. The Jews do it this way. Who really knows? I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. If that doesn't make chills go down your spine. Because what we see here is that the shadow gives way to the reality in Christ-centered worship. Worship must not be innovative by man's imagination. Worship must be according to truth upon the revelation of God's word. Worship would be limited not to a particular place, but to a peculiar people. Let me say that again. Worship would be limited not to a particular place, but to a peculiar people. 
the local church in covenant with God and, and in covenant with one another. And one of many truths that we see here is regardless of how sincere they had been, they were sincerely wrong in their worship. It's almost like, if we're not careful, the determining factor in how we worship, who we worship, and what we do when we worship is simply that we're sincere. As long as they are sincere... Friends, I don't say this in order to try to utter some astounding statement that will get your attention. I say this in sobering, trembling lips. You can be sincerely wrong. And there are many, a man in hell, that maybe in some sense were sincerely wrong. Certainly rebels against God. Don't want to push that point too far. But the point is how you worship determines what you become. God, not man, is the one seeking worshipers. Have you noticed that oftentimes we'll characterize seeker-sensitive worship? Well, here, God is the one seeking worshipers. And it should be done in spirit with a genuine, glad obedience in heart. We are to be serious serious about pursuing our full joy and delight in God. And so what we see in John 4 is that the temple, the priest, the sacrifices, all of the shadows pointed now to the substance that's in Christ. And maybe if there were a modern day point that we can make from this text while being careful not to overstate the case is don't return to the image-driven dramas. Don't return to the high-energy extravaganzas. Don't return to the pomp and the circumstances. Don't create a new priesthood of technicians and artists and actors. May the simplicity and sufficiency of God's Word drive our worship in spirit and in truth. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is a warning then in light of that in verses 16 through 19 of returning to the old covenant ceremonial law. And I'm convinced that just as Roman Catholicism of the 16th century in part was a return unbiblically to the old covenant forms... Modern day worship is oftentimes done the same exact thing. It just looks a little different. And so the point is the substance, which is Christ. Well, I don't want you to turn there, but when we come to Corinthians, we'll get to this more next week. But now we begin to get more specific in, in first and second Corinthians. Let me just share with you the fruit of some of what we read in first Corinthians about corporate worship. Corporate worship is to be orderly. There's an order to be about it. It's to be done properly and reverently in decency. We see in Corinthians that worship is to be led under the leadership of male qualified elders. Worship is with a design of participation from all the church members. So when we worship together as a church, the idea is not let's get a few people on stage so that then they can entertain us and we can watch them 
The idea is that they are to assist us so that we all participate together in worship, lifting our mouths together. Our eyes glued on the preacher, engaging with what's going on, which is what we're trying to do with our children in worship, to help them engage. We see in Corinthians that it's to be done with plain simplicity in a way that all can understand. It's to be edifying to the church. Everything about the worship is to be saturated with scripture. It's to be rooted in theology and mature thinking about God's word. In worship, we learn in Corinthians that there's to be the instruction of the mind and the heart. We're to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. We're to have the conviction of sin and the assurance of grace in Christ. We're, we see in Corinthians quite clearly that the corporate gathering of the church is for believers primarily. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so the believers gather together for worship as a local assembly. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 14 that it's to be edifying in a way this understanding because you can expect that there are going to be unbelievers who show up who are in our midst and in our presence. And our worship is to be so full of God, so full of delighting and treasuring and loving God and so full of the, the word of God. That when a visitor slips in or you invite a friend and they're here, the goal is that they would see what's going on. They would understand something of what's happening and they would be cut in heart and declare God is surely among these people. Like, I'm not sure that I buy everything I hear. I'm not sure that I'm ready to commit to what I'm being called to. But one thing is for certain. God is here. And these people deeply love God. And they serve a God who is not just a better version of themselves. This is a God bigger and more sovereign and greater than I could have ever imagined. Well, let's look at a couple more before time is out. I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 we see that the worship of God is perverted with the idolatry of man. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We have to be careful of what he called the snares of novelty. Novelty and innovation is not a commendable thing in Scripture. In Romans chapter 1, verse 22, we come to a very important part of worship. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. So we are all naturally born worshipers and mark my words, mark the words that I believe scripture teaches from first to last. Our fundamental problem is not a marriage problem. It's not a parenting problem. It's not a personal problem. Our fundamental problem, your fundamental problem and my fundamental problem 
It's not a work problem. It's not a retirement problem. It's not a physical problem. Our fundamental problem is a worship problem. It's a worship problem. Everything stems from that. Look with me in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, we come to this decisive passage after 11 chapters of doctrine, of learning about who God is, about who man is, about all of these rich truths that are so central to the Christian faith. And then in Romans 12, there's a call to do something in response. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so he calls us in light of who God is to worship God all of life in every moment, in every act. We're to delight in God. We're to honor God. We're to exalt God in everything that we do. But we're also to gather together and worship. And today worship is often first and foremost driven by the experience. Throughout the Bible, we see that worship begins with the mind, the instruction of who God is, and then the response of the heart to who God is. Well, we'll return there next week. But one thing is for certain in Scripture. There is only one general type of worship that is pleasing to God. And the type of worship that is pleasing to God is worship through His Son, through Jesus Christ, who took the full wrath of God that we deserve and through the mediation of Jesus ushers us into the presence of God where we are not just exiled to the back row and just glad to be somewhere in the building, but we are welcomed as sons and daughters. And friends, I want us to understand in light of everything that we've read and everything that's been said about how sobering worship is, that in Christ, rest assured, that through Him, our worship is welcome before God. And I want to encourage us this morning as we worship to be serious about delighting and praising and honoring God in a way that His Word governs everything that's done. And we'll return here next week. Father, we thank You that Your Word says much about how we're to relate to You. And Lord, we want to be careful to honor Your Word and we want to be careful to know You as You are in Your Word. And Lord, we pray that despite our sin, despite our guilt, maybe even despite a sour, maybe even sinful thought and conversation on the way here this morning. Father, we thank you that through repentance, through faith in Christ, that we're ushered into the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as you delight 
and the Father, the Son, the Spirit, you welcome us as your small s sons into the loving joy and fellowship of the Godhead. And Father, we submit to you. May we deeply love you. Father, we pray that you would change us this morning and we pray that our worship would be acceptable to you. We pray that we would be sober-minded and reverent. And we pray that we would not just check out in our own individual world, but we would encourage one another, edify the body through our worship together. And we pray that it would be an aroma to a lost world, mistaken in their worship, in need to be reconciled to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.